Welcome back to episode 44 of Significant Watches Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Dunn. I'm here with my trusted colleague, Eric Wind of Wind Vintage. Hey, Charlie, how are you? Miss you, Gabe. Miss you, Tony. Excited for episode 54 or 44? It's 44. <laughs> I wish I'm adding episodes. Shooting over to our friend up north, Gabe. What's up with you, man? I'm great. I'm just trying to make sense of this past weekend, but uh, I'm well. How are you guys? We're doing all right. We will get to that. Don't you worry. Tony, what's up, baby? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. So good to see you. It's good to see you as well. So I guess... um, Topics of discussion. I'm kind of winging it this morning, but I guess like the first one, what happened at uh, <laughs> Christie's? That's a good one to start with, right? Tony, let's start with your in-depth reporting live from the <laughs> satellite <laughs> office in Chicago. Yeah, well, you know, to be clear, I, I am in Chicago after spending a few days with, with Eric in New York and, and Jeger LeCoult, which I'm sure we'll get to at the end here. I wasn't, I wasn't in Geneva. So none of this is, you know, boots on the ground reporting. This is all just uh, me talking, I suppose. But, you know, uh, I didn't actually even wake up for the Christie's important, or it was the Christie's passion for time sale, right? The, the Muhammad Zaman collection, 113 lots from his private sale. It was a single owner collection that was supposed to happen. It did happen on Monday morning in Geneva. And it, it started off weird from the beginning as people were observing. I was I was fast asleep here in my bed in Chicago, but apparently the auction started about 45 minutes late. And then eventually it did start, but people were given a notice in the room and then people online, bidding online, were also screenshotting and posting the notice that, first of all, the lots were all subject to a third-party guarantee now, all 113 lots, that is. And then as the sale was going on, it was becoming clear that all of the estimates had been revised upwards, sometimes significantly so. So we'll just take the Brando GMT Master as an example, just to illustrate the point quickly. Uh, it, in the printed catalog, which I still have a copy of, uh, it had an estimate of one to two million Swiss francs. And now if you look at the lot online, it's given as an estimate of 3.75 to 6.5 million. And it sold just off of that low reserve for 4.5 million Swiss francs. So if you do the math, that's basically the low estimate plus what would be the, the buyer's premium. Um, and as someone, as our friend Alpha Hands, I should say, pointed out, this is what happened for about 70% of the lots. They sold right at the low estimate plus what would have been the fees. Uh, a lot of those went to the same paddle number, 1013, which is the the meme kind of going around the internet, right? Uh, they they kind of swept in and bought a lot of the lots. They did not, I should note, buy the Brando GMT. That went to a different paddle number, which I don't have offhand. Um, so it was kind of an odd sequence of events. I talked to Christie's after because a lot of rumors were flying about the whole thing. So I talked to Remy Guillaume at Christie's and basically what he explained to me is that he said a third-party guarantee guarantor came to them at 6 p.m. the night before the sale and said, we want to guarantee the entire sale, all 113 lots. Um, Zaman got into Geneva that night. So they brought the 
offer the deal to Zaman the next morning, and they inked the deal in the Four Seasons lobby at 10 a.m., which is why the auction started about an hour late, 45 minutes late. He described the third-party guarantor to me as knowledgeable about luxury in the world of auctions. He said it's not their first experience with third-party guarantees. He said it's a United States-based entity, I believe. So there's been a lot of speculation, uh, you know, that Christie's may have seen sort of lagging interest and perhaps they were trying to shop a deal to, to get some third party to come in and guarantee the sale to sort of save face at the facing, facing the possibility of, of a lot of unsold lots in the sale. Um, especially when they've got kind of the Oak collection sale coming up in the next month. Uh, you know, it's kind of a similar thing where the Oak collection, they're going to be selling a big single owner sale. And it, it's something that they've been trying to do to kind of uh, alleviate the risk that they've taken on with these huge single owner collections, especially in light of a softening watch market. I think that kind of gives the, the broad contours of what people were observing that ha- has happened and then kind of what Chrissy's has told me has happened. Um, it's, I think everyone can kind of agree it's something that's super unusual. It's not really that unusual in the world of art. Uh, and art auctions. I've read a number of stories in the past day about very, very similar things happening. Uh, I read a story about a, a Liechtenstein that, you know, uh, it sold for something like $150 million when a third party guarantee stepped in like an hour before the auction to do something very similar. It happened at Christie's. You can read the story online. So maybe this is when we'll kick it over to our former auction star. Uh, who worked at Christie's no less to to give us some additional context as to as to what may have happened and and how this sort of thing comes together at at the auction. Uh, and of course, that's Eric. Eric, what do you think? Uh, so super unusual. Um, I was not bidding on any of the lots in that auction. I bid on a number of the lots in the rare watches auction that followed. Um, only ended up getting one, but uh, the the uh, I can't say I remember any time where anything like this has happened in the world of watches and watch auctions, first of all. Second, it's extremely unusual to revise estimates up. You know, I don't I can't think of an instance where it was revised up after the catalog was printed. Um, it's always if it's revised, it's revised down or you just revise the typically you don't even adjust the estimate. Uh, you just you just adjust the reserve and privately tell people who might be interested that the reserve might be a little bit lower than the low estimate. Uh, so whatever you have to do to sell the, the watches. I heard um, Christie's had a tough art sale about two months ago, and uh, there might have been something similar where they were freaking out that it was going to do bad, and it's possible this entity was the one who stepped in there. Uh, and maybe this was them dipping their toe into watches if uh if that was successful um I'm not really sure whenever I think of entity, I think of the new mission impossible when there's this virus essentially called the entity that's trying to take over the world uh and rewrite all the computers change history and all the stuff so uh entity is always funny it's like is this a hedge fund is this um a private individual who's actually just calling that you know doing their business activities through an LLC or what what exactly is this but um yeah i don't i don't know uh 
anything beyond what's been said, but I certainly will say it's not a great look for people that were prepared to bid on some of these watches. I had a few clients who were interested in a few of the independent pieces that were in the collection. And, you know, when you're, you know, getting up hours early in the United States to be able to bid, and then they suddenly increase the estimate drastically on you, uh, it's not a not it doesn't leave a warm and fuzzy feeling in your stomach, uh, and that's part of why there's so much outcry. But a lot of the people who might have actually traveled overseas to go visit the lots, being yeah. in person, that's probably a little bit of an irritating yeah, wake-up call. It's not great. Um, and, you know, I understand it from Christie's perspective. Uh, if they're revising the estimates up because they are getting commitment at a new low estimate from this entity, they are needing someone to pay a high amount to reward the entity with the percentage of the buyer's premium they'll get, which is the profit. So uh, it's just something that should have been done before the auction. Obviously, it's an intense negotiation, I would imagine, for Remy. He's got to call Zaman on one hand and get him you know, to adjust estimates potentially. And he's got to deal with Christie's, you know, business people above him to figure out what money they're giving away, how much it looks like, et cetera. Uh, And, you know, Zaman obviously had highest high hopes for his Brando. So this was probably a huge benefit for him uh, to see it go for the equivalent of about $5.1 US million, I think, was not on anyone's uh, radar or expectation. So uh, that that's a big win for him. And I thought it would be under $1.5 all in, honestly, um, unless Rolex bid or something crazy happened. But um, the I think it was a successful overall auction in terms of dollars if it's true that it went for 37 million swiss all in and then the other went for about 17 million swiss that's 54 million swiss total uh sold for christie's in one day which is an extremely strong day of of watch auctions but extremely peculiar new old schlock was posting uh photos of dirty white gloves to saying that was the white glove sale um, and uh, all kinds of uh, extremely annoyed people out there. Is that one reason that I think a lot of, I heard some of the same stuff that you guys are alluding to there, people that literally flew to Geneva with the expectation that the estimates were as printed in the catalog. There's no notation of any third-party guarantees or Christie's guarantees or otherwise in that printed catalog. So it seems to be the case that this did come over at, come together at the last minute. But it it left a lot of people frustrated, as you're pointing out, Charlie and Eric. Um, Is one of the reasons that you're kind of alluding to here that the estimates would have gone so high is to guarantee an entire sale uh, at, you know, whatever it was, $37 million for someone to do that would have required a, a fairly hefty fee on the order of, I don't even know how many percentage points. And you just have to put the estimates so high to offset the cost that you're sending to that third party guarantor. Yeah, it's it's not just that the you know the issue say that obviously buyers premiums typically about 25%. That has changed over the last decade in terms of it used to be kind of 25% up to 
500,000 and then it became like 25% up to 2 million. Now, um, I think Phillips is at 27% or, you know, others are at 26% and it even varies location to location or online versus live. So it's somewhat confusing. Um, for me as a bidder, I always have to figure out what the premium is, obviously, when I'm calculating bids and currency conversion to the U.S., but um, at any given time, which can shift significantly. I re remember in the old days when a dollar was worth more than a Swiss franc, and now it's like 1.11. Uh, so um, I think uh, the it's very... Uh, it's. It, no doubt Zaman was able to adjust estimates here if he was going to go along with this. My initial thought as well when this all was happening was I had wondered if Zaman hadn't signed the contract, which sounds very amateurish. But um, for those of you at home that want to be scumbags when dealing with an auction house, there's a few ways you can play with them and make their lives difficult and give them ulcers and things like that. One is try to get them to put your lot in at a certain estimate and don't sign the contract and the lots published and then try to use that to your advantage to say you're not going to sign the contract unless they give you a percentage of the buyer's premium or uh, try to just uh, pressure and pressure, like turning a screw on them to do whatever you want them to do. Uh, and they'll either have to say the lot's withdrawn or essentially it's a high stakes uh, game of, uh, of chicken. But uh, people do that sometimes and sometimes the auction houses aren't professional enough to really make sure all the contracts are signed and the I's are dotted and the T's crossed. Um, I was explaining that phrase to my son and one of his friends yesterday and they were uh, laughing about, what about for capital I's? <laughs> <laughs> and what about capital T's or whatever? But uh, the things that kids think, you know, when they're under 10. Uh, so I wondered if he hadn't uh, signed the contract and then suddenly was at the last minute. No, we've got to revise all the numbers up. Otherwise, you can't sell them because I haven't signed the contract. That was my initial thought. Um, and you could do that and be... Uh, you know, be a scumbag. The other way you can give auction houses ulcers is just during the negotiation phrase, just keep lying and saying, you're talking to Christie's that Phillips is offering you half of the buyer's premium or whatever. And if they want the lot, they've got to do the same. And you can essentially just lie because obviously you can't fact check with the other auction house what they're, what they're offering you. So, um, that was my initial thought. Um, you know, if that happened and he suddenly wanted to revise everything up if he hadn't signed it, Christie's, I don't think there's necessarily any law against it. It's certainly highly unethical. It could be illegal, but if they said, okay, we have to because we have a gun to our head and we can't have the sale like be canceled at the last minute, they could theoretically invent a fake paddle 1013 and say all this stuff sold but in fact it didn't sell <laughs> and then uh and come up with this wild story and uh and then actually everything just goes back to mr zaman in oman after the auction because it didn't sell um and that would be disastrous as well so that would be the conspiratorial side um but 
you know, we'll see. I don't know what entity or person would want to own all these things at these at these levels. You know, I guess they believe in the broader watch market. <laughs> think that they're going to go up in value the next five to ten years if they hold them but uh um yeah i don't know it's a weird weird thing yeah i had a maybe a follow-up question but it seems it's probably true that there was a, a soft sotheby's was finding a soft market for all of this stuff and maybe they were shopping around a bit of a sweetheart deal that someone eventually bid on at the last minute and i think it's probably worth noting that the Brando did not go to Paddle 1013. I'm not sure if the Sonnery did either. And right there, that's a third or a quarter of the value of the, the entire sale um, that sold to someone else. And yeah. usually the way these deals work, I guess, Eric, is first of all, you get a fee for being the guarantor. And then oftentimes you'll take a cut of the upside too, right? If it sells it's to someone really, else. It's really about the upside. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the downside is you have to own it at a certain level. Yeah. So um, say you've got a 2499. These are the kind of discussions that that we had when I was at Christie's. But you've got someone, they may have a few 2499s. They're interested in getting more. If the price is right, they put in a $2 million guarantee on a pink first series or something like that, the theoretical scenario. Then... They're okay owning it at two plus the buyer's premium. Usually you don't get any reduction in the buyer's premium. So say it was two and say it that just for argument's sake that it's twenty-five percent. So they're gonna own it at two point five million. They're comfortable owning it. But if it goes to two point one million hammer, they won't be buying it. Someone else is buying it. And at that point the buyer's premium is like you know, closer to say six hundred thousand, they might get ten to twenty percent of that six hundred thousand, or they might get as much as half if if the auction house is really concerned it won't sell. So they could be making three hundred k. And the types of people who think about this are often in the finance and hedge fund world, and that's the same in in art. You know, your average collector is not really thinking about things this way, but they're thinking about things in more of a financial financial instruments kind of way so there are routinely deals cut with with particularly private individuals that are hedge fund managers or things like this in the art world uh they already have a few pieces from the artist they want to protect the value of the art they already have and are happy to own it if it's a good piece of art at a certain price and they're happy to make money and see their other art go up as well so that's kind of how we would think about guarantees usually on a specific high level lot, usually Patek Philippe, because there you know weren't a lot of Rolexes selling for uh, seven figures back in the day. Uh, remember Stephen Pulverhint's article about every every Rolex that had sold for a million dollars. I remember the first the split back at Christie's, but uh, the yeah, I think. Um, it's unusual to do a wholesale, obviously, but it uh, seems to be something that's propping up in 2023. Propping up. Yeah. So it seems like maybe what could have happened is they were part of the deal was uh, a, a wink, wink, nod, nod that you'll get the upside on on maybe one or two of the big lots or maybe a few more than that. Um, I, I referenced this Liechtenstein art article because. 
there was reporting a few years ago when f- something very similar happened, as I said. Uh, reporting came out that Francois Pinot, who who owns Christie's via his his luxury conglomerates, uh, was the one who bought it to to sort of help one of his um, one of his ownership stakes. So maybe someone friendly to Christie's, you know, had stepped in on some of the bigger lots to to make sure that uh, there was a successful sale or a deal that a third party would actually be interested in and. To your point, if it is, uh, if this third party is someone that's already active in the world of art and whatever else, um, they're probably okay with sitting on some of these things for for a period of years. And by the way, Christie's will help them disperse some of the stuff on the back end over the next few years. If indeed they are a a, a favorite client of of the auction house, seems like a, a plausible scenario to me. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the only one other. I think case that was somewhat interesting. Um, a few that on the guarantee side, I think I've referenced one before, but um, Alfred Tobman, who used to be the owner of Sotheby's, just as an idea with these guarantees, um, he his estate basically after he passed. I think he had spent time in prison as well uh, because he and Christie's basically had a price fixing agreement gentleman's agreement that they wouldn't go below 10 percent uh seller's commission uh and they'd hold steady and essentially as a duopoly you know if you have an important piece of art at this in this stage you know you're going to be getting a portion of the buyer's premium or that kind of 25 percent or whatever tapers to at that level um so as much as half and typically would be you know, so if it's uh, like a $50 million painting, you're looking at several million dollars on the bars premium you get to keep as well. Uh, but back in the day, they would say, sorry, we're at 10% for both parties. So if you'd sold for 50, you'd have to give them 10%. Uh, and uh, they would be, you'd be getting $5 million, you know, from the hammer price. Uh, but they basically, there's a whole case. I think you you talked about it, Tony, the podcast yeah. referenced that. But um, yeah. Alfred, after he passed, his estate was with his family, and Sotheby's was going to get it, and then um, Christie's was competing for it, almost as sport to try to spite Sotheby's, and uh, and there was a lot of stuff in there. But some of the some of the lots were basically unsold items that Alfred himself bought back when he was owner. And it was unsold because it wasn't super high quality, super desirable stuff. So the quality of the estate, according to most uh, art experts and things, was not wonderful. But Sotheby's at the last minute came back and then said they would give like a $500 million guarantee on the on the estate because they thought it would be so embarrassing to lose it to Christie's when he was kind of the main competitor for Taubman's ownership and, uh, and the prison stuff, et cetera. So Sotheby's supposedly lost like over a hundred million dollars, like a hundred to 150 million on the total thing. And we're stuck with all of that stuff because they guaranteed it. So they had a basement full of Taubman's kind of reject paintings that they're still selling off years later. Uh, we had our, we, we had our, we had our own uh, smaller scenario with this uh, collection of English pocket watches. I think I've referenced before on the podcast as well. And 
Sotheby's wanted it. It was from a member of the House of Lords in England. And Christie said, no way, we're going to be spending years trying to sell this junk that no one wants. It's not actually junk, it's important stuff, but no one wants it. And uh, so then that was uh, the, our, my fearless leader, John Reardon's decision, along with the Geneva team, including Sabine. And then we got word from the higher-ups, you better compete for this. This is, you know, British aristocracy, and we're at the same cocktail parties, et cetera. We better, we better compete for this, otherwise it's going to look bad for us uh, socially in London. So uh, <laughs> we competed, and then Sotheby's wanted it so badly, they gave a $10 million guarantee, and they had four auctions one of which got brief coverage from Jack Forster on Hodinkee back in the day, but otherwise basically got zero coverage in any watch press. And I think they lost several million dollars. I heard north of five million on that. Uh, in terms of, they, I don't know what happened with the unsold lots, but they had guaranteed they would be sold. So theoretically, they're still in a Sotheby's vault somewhere in London, perhaps in the basement. But, uh, it was a real lose <laughs> endeavor, as I like to often say. <laughs> and the the best part was that someone in the Christie's business development office uh, in the proposal for the member of the House of Lords said that all the Christie's watch specialists would wear English pocket watches and three-piece suits to the auction previews in Geneva, New York, et cetera, et cetera. Degrading. Uh, <laughs> rather wear nothing, I bet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, thankfully we didn't win that one and they got stuck with the, with the time bomb there. <laughs> the rejects. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Gabe, what say you? I mean, it comes at a weird time for, for auctions. They probably didn't need a, I hesitate to call it, call it a, a controversy, but they probably didn't need more news like this. Uh, what, what say you about the whole matter? I mean, I, I think it just leaves a bad taste in the in everyone's mouth. Um, I think we we discussed it. I think Eric hit on all the right notes there. And um, I mean, you know, look, it's it's something that we see a lot in the art world, and it's not it's not um, you know it's not uncommon. I think what is uncommon is the late hour and the in room uh, changes in in uh, the estimates. And I think that that's um, that that. That's it. Just in poor taste. I think they should have just left it alone because now we're all, we're talking about it for all the wrong reasons. Um, sure, the brand of made a huge number that no one was expecting. I think, but I think that there's, um, I think that there's a there's a fine line, and I think they. I, I understand why people do it, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, you look at the differences in prices in art and in watches, and I. I, I don't really see the incentive, especially with a with a market that could you know could kind of go either way. I mean, we saw very strong results from Phillips, and then we saw uh, softer ones at you know at uh, Sotheby's, and you know it's kind of a crapshoot. Christie's is kind of floating, you know. I mean, it's it's kind of uh, the redhead stepchild of the big three auction houses at the moment, and I think it's. Uh, How you dare know, I, you? I, I, <laughs> I have nothing against redheaded people. I hear that they actually have a higher pain tolerance, so 
they're actually superior to us in some ways. And I think Christie's has, has definitely a higher pain tolerance for shooting themselves in the foot sometimes. And, you know, I think there will be um, some thinking, you know, some second thoughts about people trying to sell, uh, you know, through Christie's in, in the future. Um, you know, I, I, th- I, I didn't like it. Um, you know, we'll see, but you know, the, uh, the other, um, auctions were also quite interesting. I thought, you know, I think it's m- worth mentioning, um, Phillips had their first pass. Well, it had their first pass lot that they publicly acknowledge, um, in the last three years as the last lot of, uh, of the auction. And they kind of glossed over it just so RL could make an announcement that Claude Sphere was back in the room. Not really sure why that was relevant, but they seemed to make, um, a big deal out of he, that. Yeah. Uh, he apparently, he apparently had long COVID and was like literally bedridden and struggling to walk. So this is the first time he's been at an auction since before COVID. And you know, the first time he's, been able to walk like publicly um in a couple of years so that's the idea. fantastic we're we're glad that he walked his way to geneva into an auction room um and you know he was well received and i'm sure he bought a lot of uh big uh big uh, big lots um to get that kind of reception from from rl um i think um yeah i mean there, there were a couple of of uh results that i think we should talk about you know the triple zero drew four uh simplicity didn't go bonkers which i was particularly happy happy about um i i don't think number on the watch is 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 relevant um uh, you know somebody posted uh, one of the ones that looped this had for sale and said this is incredible it's your opportunity to own one of a few hundred of this rare watch and you know i just rolled my eyes um but i you know i think i think people will will sort of realize that there are a few hundred and these aren't a $2 million watch or whatever the speculators will have you believe. Um, I think this one hit the right number, whatever I think it hammered in like four fifty or whatever it was. Um, so that, that was good. You know, the 51, what was it? 5110, uh, world timer at Sotheby's, uh, with a prototype dial, which, you know, uh, had some coverage, but not a lot hammered below a hundred thousand. So, you know, a couple of, uh, a couple of results that I thought were on interesting watches that weren't stratospheric in terms of what, you know, we've seen other, you know, I mean, just for comparison, you know, Ascenza Luna is, I don't know, whatever it is today. Last time I went up for sales, like 800 or a million, I can't remember. Um, you know, these things are, are very, very expensive usually. So that was, that was that, but, uh, you know, the, the Pisa datograph, did a good number also, you know, there, there was, it was kind of a mixed bag, but I thought, you know, I, I can't remember the reference number, but I was bidding pretty heavily on that, uh, Cartier time only Patek. And I thought that I would actually have it. And there was like a moment at 32 where he just kind of paused and I was the high bidder at 32. (laughs) And then all of a sudden it just went to 250,000 or whatever that was. Um, and I don't know, you know, if that watch is worth it or if there's really any others, but I thought that was a crazy number for that. And then also the MBNF, uh, you know, chocolate box, which I really wanted, also did north of 200, which I thought was insane. Um, 
and you know even even the or work you are 102 was you know i couldn't cross 50,000 on that watch cuz i still think of it as a 12 to 14,000 dollar watch uh privately so you know there there's a couple of things you know the streller didn't go crazy and this was the first time a streller went up for auction um i thought that was um, that was a missed opportunity there, but I also think people don't realize exactly how rare that stuff is. Um, you know, I, I understand the looks are very specific, but you know, I think the the Indies had had a good moment. Some of the Longa was also strong. Obviously, the Pateks were were strong. The the good vintage Pateks and. You know, some of the modern stuff I thought hammered, especially at Phillips, um, you know, towards the low estimates, which were in line with market, which was nice to see, because usually at Phillips, we'll see people uh, basically flipping Batmans for three, four X retail. Um, this was, you know, right in line with market, you know, not including taxes, obviously, but that was that was a sort of breath of fresh air where it felt like people were really piling into the high quality stuff and were kind of leaving alone the run of the mill production stuff that you could pick up on 47th street with ease um the I, yeah i thought the Cart- the cartier 2455 uh Patek Philippe reference 2455 signed by Cartier was an interesting, certainly shocking lot in terms of how, how much it sold for. This is for those of you that saw uh, my talk to the Horological Society of New York part two from March, a kind of an interesting case on condition. I'm not sure that the buyer necessarily realized this, but it's very clear. One, the case had been polished. Two, the dial had been sanded. Uh, and when these dials are kind of washed and sanded, retailer signatures in 99% of the cases were uh, printed on the dials, not in hard enamel. So that signature is almost always lost, whether it's Tiffany, Cartier, etc. cetera. Uh, and then added back, you know, typically sometimes by reprinters, you know, not affiliated with Patek Philippe or sometimes by Patek Philippe or sometimes by the retailer themselves if they have trained watchmakers. So for me, the dial had been sanded. The Cartier signature was added back. That style of Cartier signature, in my opinion, is not correct for a 1952 watch. They were just probably updating it in the 70s, 80s, and uh, it would have been more of a more of a uh, simple Cartier signature, uh, perhaps even in another part of the dial, or perhaps not even on the dial originally. I'm not questioning that it wasn't sold at Cartier necessarily, but you could add a Cartier bracelet to, you know, to watches as well. But I think it's important that people realize this dial had been, you know, definitely touched. Uh, and in my opinion, the signature was probably not how it would have originally looked on the watch in 1952 if it was on the dial. So, uh, a little bit of a condition lesson at home. I'm routinely offered Tiffany and Co. Patex. Uh, in most cases, it's been reprinted, and definitely on some of them, Tiffany was never on the dial. I would say uh, it was just added late in the last kind of twenty, thirty years because the watch was obviously worth more if it said Tiffany. 
Uh, so just because you see a Patek with with a retailer signature, particularly something like Cartier or Tiffany, doesn't necessarily mean it's original to the watch. Uh, and uh, it's important that people realize that not everything you see uh, is original in an auction catalog, as I've said many times, just like uh, other things you see out in the world aren't necessarily real. Uh, often they're a beautiful fiction. How do um, the presence or lack thereof of retailer papers of any sort help with determining any of the originality or whether a watch was born with a retailer signature or not, uh, Eric? It definitely helps. Uh, for Tiffany, my understanding is they have zero records of any watch sold at Tiffany uh, prior to the early 2000s, like after the year 2000. So. Back even in the 80s and 90s, you could get letters from Tiffany uh, kind of validating watches. However, it seemed in many cases that the Tiffany signature was either redone or added later. So for me, having a 1990s Tiffany letter with a watch is not... uh, a validating factor necessarily. You have to look at other things, particularly the quality of the signature itself and the year of the watch. You know, just because it has a letter doesn't make it real. Uh, there is um, a similar factor with Cartier and some of the kind of certificates they did on watches back in the 80s, 90s. Um, there was uh you know, certainly some watches that, that had Cartier extracts, if you will, that were clearly not Cartier watches. And, uh, you know, because that has this kind of um, glossy, uh, basically extract with it that someone might have been bribed for even to produce, etc., uh, does not make the watch worth millions of dollars necessarily. They discontinued that whole thing because of scandals and lawsuits etc so they don't do that anymore one of the more egregious things i've seen at auction and i would be a fun kind of blog post a listicle but like the worst watches and clocks sold at auction that are kind of outrageous fakes and why uh but um could also could also end up in a lawsuit or uh other problems but there was a clock, I won't even say where it was sold, but it was a Cartier clock, you can search for it on Google at home, uh, that had a floating turtle in it. Uh, and these were kind of electromagnetic, so the turtle would float and indicate the time. Uh, and you would put water in, and it's kind of a cool thing. Um, it sold for a couple hundred thousand dollars at auction, and clearly it was a Gubelin clock. There was one Cartier clock that was that's in one of in a couple of the Cartier books, I think, including the Jack Forster Cartier book uh, in their museum that was Cartier. But the Gubelin ones had essentially the same technology. They've sold as few as low as like two or three thousand dollars in like small auctions. Sometimes in Arizona or other places, these things are found. This was clearly the Gubelin one. If you found, I found like ten other examples of the clock. And someone just had engraved Cartier on the base of it and done it in a very poor, incorrect, even kind of signature style, like cursive, when we're talking about a very old clock. And uh, the the 
clock had actually been purchased by Cartier uh, for their museum and then was sold by the museum to a collector who had the receipt from Cartier. Uh, and it was such a you know piece of junk, really. But people went over 200000 on it because, oh, it's validated by Cartier. It has a letter. It was sold by the museum, which you also have to ask yourself, why is Cartier selling something from their museum if it's so important? Uh, so uh, to me, that was kind of one of those examples. Just because it has a letter, uh, or even in this case had been sold by the company itself, didn't make it real or original. It's uh, it's really crazy. Eric, we kind of jumped into talking some of the specific lots that Gabe had mentioned, but he kind of started with a general overview of, of what he saw as far as the, the auctions are concerned, concerned more generally. I'm wondering if you and Charlie had any broad trends or takeaways as to what the auctions said about the, the market more generally. A uh, couple things, I think, um, that were that were good. I thought high-quality vintage did very well. You know, I'm thinking particularly of the mill sub 5517 at Sotheby's, which I gave a run at but was blown away. That sold for over 500,000 USD. It's about 480,000 Swiss francs. Uh, and that... Um, was a phenomenal watch. It's the nicest 5517 I had seen. Unpolished. They're almost, you know, almost every mill sub's polished because if it ever went in for service, it was polished. Or when people wanted to get the Henry Hudson Bexy letters, it had to go through a service and would get polished. I don't think I've ever seen a mill sub with a Hudson letter that's unpolished. They're usually the ones that kind of escaped and somehow stayed with the diver who didn't return it, etc. cetera, uh, that remain unpolished. We're talking. I can only think of three offhand, including this one, one owned by Dr. Petronzi, another owned by a collector in New York that sold at Bonhams. Um, so none of the three had Hudson letters. But um, the 5517 is typically the most valuable because it's a unique reference number. It's the last version made, this kind of a maxi dial. The older ones, I actually find charming, the original 5513s, because the loom is typically a little more domed. And often the 5517s have more kind of whitish loom, but this loom had aged so nicely. There was a lot of corrosion in the hands, which I actually liked. It was the original crystal clearly just beat up. This thing really saw a lot of wear. Uh, it had been a gift to, I guess, a gentleman who worked for someone who had gotten the watch originally in the Navy, you know, about 23 years ago, and then they were selling it. So totally fresh to market. Uh, and you know, it got everyone excited. I thought, you know, I personally think we haven't seen the bottom for a lot of modern watch values and independence. The the Jorns didn't do that great, particularly the early resonance was very disappointing at Sotheby's. Um, the Roger Smith, George Daniels did well, obviously, uh, I thought, but that's the first kind of dual signed watch and was Roger Smith's personal watch, a gift from George Daniels, et cetera. So that that did well, but uh, I thought high-quality vintage did very well. There was a nicer amount of high-quality lots, I thought, in Geneva this season than in the past, where sometimes I'm not bidding on too much. Uh, but I thought results were very good overall. I thought the auctions were going to be softer than they were, um, so I was happy to see that. We're certainly... This is the only metric we really have for how the market's doing in terms of public results. It's imperfect because. 
you get strange things happening like the passion for time auction but i think it indicated that there's still a pretty strong depth of market for a lot of things and still obviously lots of interest and lots of passion and you know these things are still very desirable obviously and and you know it just gives people confidence to keep buying watches on uh, from winvintage.com and others as well when they see a good good weekend of auctions you know it was a was a lot because typically Sotheby's would do like Tuesday or Wednesday after the auction so you literally had all these auction houses doing auctions on Saturday and Sunday you had Phillips Sotheby's and Antiquorum all at the same times essentially and overlapping uh and uh it's just it's a huge amount of watches you know that several thousand watches sold in in one weekend across four days but i thought it did well the mill sub was lot three at sotheby's for those who want to follow along we'll put some of these links in the show notes as well the other lot that i really fell in love with was the uh 3525 at um at Sotheby's that had a Rome retailer. It was in pink gold. Totally original, seemed unpolished, original crystal, even with a lot of like a big phrasing gash between kind of twelve o'clock and three o'clock. And that uh you just can't really find watches in that condition. It came from a couple that had purchased it a long time ago. Uh some people thought that the damage on the crystal was on the dial on the tacky scale, but it was just the crystal crazing. Super, super special watch. Um, pocket watches did very well. The Rolex pocket watch with black dial chronograph at, at uh, Antiquorum uh, did 25 Swiss hammer. It's over 30,000 Swiss with premium. And I thought some of the, they had a few really nice Patek Philippe pocket watches in the Sotheby's online auction that just ended today. They did well. Um, so I think there's a lot of value still there, but it's good to see a lot of interest in those pieces. That pink gold Rolex 3525 sold for uh, 109 Swiss francs. If you didn't yeah, mention that. Sotheby's. I, I, I bid on it and was blown. Ah. Uh, so I, but I'm happy for whoever got that really special, special watch. I had dreams of, uh, wearing that to the breakers in Palm beach and uh, not going to happen right now. Um, do you guys want to leave the auction discussion there for now? I mean, New York auctions are coming up, so we'll have more to talk about over the coming weeks. Uh, Eric, maybe we can talk about JLC for, for just a moment and then leave yeah. this episode there. Yeah, that's perfect. Oh, one uh, speaking of one last lot that was in the auctions. That was a JLC perfect transitional lot. The reverso with the enamel tennis scene was withdrawn by Christie's. There was a lot of uh, discussion before the auction that there was a set of dials sold at Antiquorum uh, that were vintage enamel dials, but then had found their way into uh, some reversos uh, over the last 20 years. And that the retailer code on the back was incorrect, etc. for JLC or the Stern Records. Um, which uh, still exist may have, you know, indicated it wasn't correct for that, or maybe JLC records, even if they had a record of the dial, wouldn't have matched that dial. So uh, that was withdrawn. Uh, it may be that was a beautiful fiction. I don't know the exact story, but it's worth 
worth mentioning, uh, Reverso leading into the Reverso exhibit that we were just at, Tony. Uh, tell us about your impressions. Well, Eric and I were both in New York for the opening of the Reverso Stories exhibit in, in Chelsea at a, an event space there. If you're there in New York from now until November 22nd, go and check it out. It's a, it's a cool exhibit. They've got, you know, if you make an appointment, I think there's an opportunity to see some of the new reversos, the reverso chronograph, some beautiful enamels that they released alongside the opening of the exhibit itself. These ones are legit dials. Uh, they gave us some, some presentations. Eric and I actually were both commenting after our intro to the exhibit that they put together some nice videos that featured some of the craftsmen and women that, that do some of the enameling and, and other craftsmanship type and artisanal things that go into the reverso. They, they said they have five enamelers that can do enamel backs, enamel paintings, like they had on these Hokusai reversos that they showed us. They're, they're actually quite beautiful sort of miniatures. Um, the dial on the front of those is a beautiful enamel as well. Uh, so that's kind of the the modern pitch as to what they've got going on there with the the modern reversals that they're showing us. They also had just kind of the exhibit does a, a pretty solid job telling the story of the history of the reverso. They put it in context of the Art Deco movement and all that type of stuff. They've got some pretty cool reversos on display from the 30s, 40s, 50s. They had a Corvo reverso, which I was particularly excited to see. Uh, the the story maybe we'll tell at a later date, but you know the Corvo Reverso is kind of what led to the rebirth of the Reverso in the 70s and forward. The Corvo family discovered 200 or so steel cases from the 40s or 50s when JLC kind of ceased production on the Reverso for a while. They were making Mark 12s or Mark 11s, I should say, and other stuff like that. Uh, and they discovered these cases and convinced JLC that they needed to bring back the reverso because it's such an iconic and cool design. So it was cool to see one of those in person. I, I'd never seen one before. They're, they're pretty awesome. And then they had, you know, the important complicated reversos of the nineties and forward. I think a highlight for Eric and me as well was meeting the Casa Fagliano guys. Two of them were there, Eduardo and Herman. Uh, so it was cool to, to share a couple of meals with them and learn more about their craft craftsmanship. I, I didn't realize the company is still so small. It's literally like five of them full time that are making these, these polo boots and select straps for for JLC. So it's it's cool to learn about them a little bit and and get to know them on a personal level. They were there just for the opening of the exhibit, and I'm I'm looking forward to receiving a, a Casa Fagliano strap for a, for a JLC at some point soon. Here now, they they took some measurements for me, so that'll be coming at some point. Uh, Eric, what did I miss, or what were your impressions of the exhibit? I thought also the Corvo uh, reversos were very interesting. They made 200 and I guess they sold out and the story on the placard next to the watches was that they sold the 200 in like one weekend in Italy. Uh, so that was, I don't know if that's a little bit of hyperbole, but that's super cool. Um, they had uh, some of the ledgers or reproductions of them with coats of arms and uh, also the letter engravings. Uh, so I absolutely loved looking through those and snapped a few pics from my personal archive uh, <laughs> when we were doing our course. They had uh, some of the ledgers of orders for watches from JLC, and it was fun to see the page that they had it open to. There were several Patek Philippe orders and Vacheron orders on the page. Uh, so that was very special. Um, I was bummed uh, 
Charlie Dunn couldn't come because it would have been a perfect opportunity for a photo report. That opening kind of event, there were at least 200 people wearing JLC watches there. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, not really a great photo report of all the watches. I didn't have my, uh, I was too busy enjoying the Lenny Kravitz drinks and I didn't have my camera with me to, to be shooting. But you had Lenny there, Nicholas Holt. Uh, others uh anya so that was very cool um but was really i haven't really seen an event like it in terms of jlc uh we did the collectibles thing that was in the boutique and obviously smaller and great to see a lot of jlc love but this was next level super high for me obviously from the vintage kind of scholarship side and exhibition side i was excited to see just the amount of of space and dedication they had given to vintage JLC and the history of the Reverso uh, and, you know, documentation, et cetera, and the vintage Reversos brought over from the museum. Uh, I didn't see Douglas MacArthur's Reverso there. That would have been cool, given the kind of U.S. bent. And I previously held that watch when it was at Antiquorum and sold there. Uh, and then JLC won it and polished the case, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, it would have been nice to see it again after, you know, eight years since I last saw it. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely cool. I thought it was the neatest watch exhibition I've seen in the United States since the Patek Philippe brand exhibition in 2017, which was obviously another scale at Cipriani that was like eight times as large, uh, probably in a lot more in depth. But if you can sign up for the Atelier de Antoine, uh, Reverso case building course, Gabe, you should do it. Um, I had no idea the Reverso was actually case is 50 components. Uh, and I never exactly knew how it worked. So essentially assemble the case in terms of how it attaches to the back. Uh, and Tony and I, uh, both enjoyed that <laughs> and got our, uh, got our diplomas signed by the CEO, et cetera. So, yeah, I thought it was very special. Great to see a lot of people thinking about JLC in a new way after this exhibit and uh, would encourage you all to try to go if you can. And- yep, a lot of fun. You know, one of my favorite parts of the weekly Wind Vintage newsletter is is the PS where Eric Wynn gives his cultural recommendations straight from Palm Beach. Um, any cultural recommendations from from you or from Gabe? Uh, I don't have anything at the moment, um, but uh, I'm sure something will come up soon. I also don't have any watch spots lately, but again, I think that'll write itself. Um, oh, I did pick up a book, but it's not it's not really relevant. It's but cultural. It's called The Cult of GTR. It just came out about uh, the Nissan GTR. Um, it's supposed to be good. We'll see. That's great. Any uh, final recommendations, Charlie Dunn? No, I'm just snoring over here. Let's wrap it up. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for episode 44, not 54, of Significant Watches. Uh, And please leave us a review. We've had, it's been a dearth of reviews on our Apple podcast recently. It's been very disappointing. 